This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. And one final issue with this. Um, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, both testaments prohibit the eating of blood, the ingestion of blood. Now on this point, I agree with Pastor Santi in that the Old Testament forbade the Jews drinking blood simply because they were a peculiar people. They were a different people in that not only had God formed them, brought them out of the land of Egypt, but now he's going to make them completely different from all of the pagan nations around them with what they wear, how they worship, who they worship, and what they eat. So this is why you have all of the dietary laws. So yes, I agree with him. The life is in the blood. In the Old Testament, they were not to eat anything that had the blood in it. Nothing that was strangled. You had to kill it and drain the blood out of it. They were not allowed to eat the blood. The New Testament in Acts chapter 15, the, the early church continues that idea um, of not eating blood. Yep. So that it does persist, and this is a problem. What our friend Pastor Santi is saying is that this is a binding thing. This is binding. It's binding in the sense that it was prohibited in the Old Testament, and uh, thus, as a result of that, it is perpetual. Prohibited in the New, and then every Baptist, every non-Vietnam person who eats blood sausage is committing a sin. In the South, we don't eat blood sausage. I don't, I don't know what that is. I bet you do. I think it's also called head sausage. Take a pig, you cut its throat, drain the blood out, and then you boil that blood and add some, you add spices and some gelatin and so on, and it, it congeals, and then you make sausages out of it. You put it through a sausage maker. It's it's common it's common food throughout the Gentile world. That sounds absolutely disgusting. Oh, I, I didn't even try it. So let's throw Acts fifteen out as a as a, as an argument because clearly Christians came to eat meat sacrificed to idols and other things like this as long as it didn't cause offense in the church. So the only argument that's in is the Old Testament argument. And the Old Testament argument is a ceremonial law, not a moral law. So it would be very unusual for Jesus to say, eat my blood, drink my blood, because it would be inconsistent with the rest of what God has said in Scripture. So... Do the elements literally, physically, actually become his body and his blood? I don't think that was Jesus' intent. The Holy Spirit is no skeptic. Uh, what is this? I don't think. I, I really don't like this hedging of, of statements by saying this is what I think uh, or this is what I don't think. God, the Holy Spirit, deals in certainties. And this is, listen folks, this is Luther's claim to Erasmus uh, in 1526 in the bondage of the will. He just screams off the page, the Holy Spirit is no skeptic. And we dare not make the scriptures a matter of what we think and what we don't think. All our thoughts must be taken captive by the word of God. I think he was speaking symbolically or figuratively about what he was doing. This is representative of my body and my blood and what I am about to do. And so these two elements are tied to his body and blood that represent his death, his crucifixion that was for us. And so I think he's speaking figuratively in that way, and we can take it that way and still have meaningful understanding of what these elements represent. 
So even if we're diminishing what Christ has said, even if we totally deny the benefits given to us, it can still be meaningful. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It becomes a blank canvas on which we paint our inmost desires. Wonderful. And we stand back and we just enjoy it. Exactly. Why will be our next area. Why do we need to do this? Well, as we've already talked about, the meal causes us to remember. If we're just going to continue with the silliness here, the meal causes us to remember now? Like, remembering is a natural byproduct of, of the meal? I thought remembering was an act of my will, that it's something that I must do in order to partake of it rightly? I'm hoping you're starting to see, Pastor Bruss, that when you shoehorn these verses, when you take some literally, when you take some figuratively, when you take this gift that God is desiring to give to us, and we totally reject it, you start to see the mental gymnastics one has to go through, and it, everything gets really confusing. I see that. Yeah. So, so we've got multi-directionality. And one thing that I just thought of, does he mean that we should, does he literally mean that we should remember, or just figure it out? Oh, now you're being a smarty pants. I am. I am. <laughs> now, we eat lots of different meals, three or more times a day, usually. We are constantly eating to survive and because we enjoy it. But when we come to this meal, just as with Passover, that meal had special relevance, and it was approached a little bit differently than an ordinary meal. There were preparations and things that went into that, and they knew when you sat down to the Passover meal that everything had meaning. As we come to the Lord's Supper, as we come to this representative meal, we understand that the bread and the cup have meaning that is not connected with bread or cups at other times in other places. It has specific meaning. We are to remember his body and blood, the salvation that he provided by his death or through his death, as we've already mentioned. This is the salvation event that we are remembering, what that means past, present, and future for us. Because Jesus said, I will not do this again until the kingdom, until the culmination of the kingdom. We understand that as he talked about it in his second coming. When he returns to bring the fullness of the kingdom to bear, and Jesus says, I won't do this again. I will not participate with you in this meal until that time. We see that in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns and the meal is set up. So we understand there is going to be a future meal because there is a future fulfillment or culmination of our salvation. We recognize that now we are in this period of our sanctification that is living out our salvation, but we're looking forward to what we call glorification when we will be perfected in Christ and we will see him face to face and Apparently, according to what Jesus said, he will sit down and eat with us. So the culmination of salvation, we are looking forward. We are looking forward in hope. We are looking forward in faith to what is coming, to what awaits us when we will do that together with him. Okay, I think there's way too much to unpack there. But again, I mean, we're just throwing 
it's like Pastor Santi is just throwing all of these things against the wall and whatever sticks, great. I guess the biggest issue that I was having as he was making uh, making his remarks there, he kept talking about the culmination of the kingdom as if when Jesus says, I won't do this with you again until... Jesus doesn't say the culmination of the kingdom. No, until I eat it again with you in my kingdom. So he's not talking about the end of the kingdom. Yeah, the apokatastasis, that whole business, the right, the, the uh, reconstitution of all things. And then we can go to the book of Revelation and see, oh, that's what he's talking about. No, 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 no. It, as you've pointed out before, this doing it again with you is going to happen a lot sooner than the culmination of all things. Way sooner. And, and the first time that it does happen, uh, at least that's recorded in Scripture, is uh, at the end of Luke. He's with the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. See, no evangelical would look at that instance with the resurrected Lord and two disciples who are shell-shocked by what has happened in Jerusalem as Jesus supping with them, Lord Supper-wise. But I think that's what you were getting ready to talk about. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. So there, there the Lord Jesus is both host and guest, and host uh, in the sense of <laughs> bread. Um, and their eyes are not opened until yes, exactly. the breaking of the bread. Yes. So your point there is, this is one instance, or maybe the earliest instance, where Jesus says, I'm not going to do this again, not not at the end of the age, when all things are restored. It's right after his resurrection. Indeed. And, you know, uh, let's just run through some of the things here. This whole idea of the distant Jesus is is just, it's uh, it should scare the hell out of a Christian, really. Uh, and really, Jesus isn't with me here on earth? That's a scary thought, because here I am surrounded by sin, by death, and by the devil's power, and if I do not have the valiant one of God on my side, what's to come of me? Well, isn't it the good news in Psalm 23 that he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies? Okay, Psalm 23. Let's jump up to the New Testament. Um, last words of Jesus in, in uh, recorded in Matthew. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. How? Well, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then? And then by teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you, including the Lord's Supper. And voila, that's what behold, idde, idu, idite means. Voila, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But I'm with you in the sense that you're doing these things, correct? I'm with you in the sense, not that you're doing something else, we're not minimizing Jesus's presence, but when he when he says, I'm with you when you baptize, I'm with you when you teach, this is where I am. I, I am with you in this endeavor of making disciples. Exactly. Uh, yes, but I want to make a point here. It's not, I'm with you in this endeavor of making disciples. I am with you always, right? I mean, this is the point that, that it's not just in the mission of the church that Jesus is with us, in the mission understood as going to Africa and preaching to pygmies. Uh, he is with us whenever his sacraments are administered and whether whenever his word is taught. In fact, dear listener, the Lord Jesus, uh, Pastor Kearns and I are nothing special, but the Lord Jesus is with you right now as you hear this word, which is the word of Christ being taught. That's his promise. He who hears you hears me. So the kingdom 
is what Pastor Santi was referring to, this culmination of it. So the Lord's not going to do this again until the culmination of it. And I'm hoping that you could kind of hear the dispensational view that now we're living in the age of grace, where now we've got to work on our sanctification, and Jesus is not going to sup with us again until we're in glorified bodies and all in heaven. Yeah, okay, I did, I did hear that. I did hear that. Let's return to where we were a little bit earlier, God with the dirty fingernails. Um, what I'm hearing here is that the quintessential kingdom of God, the best kingdom of God, is the one that's that's up in heaven, um, you know, where... One that we're far removed from. One that we're far removed from. And that what whatever's going on down here really isn't the, isn't the kingdom of heaven. Well, no, you know, I mean, wherever Jesus is, there's his kingdom, right? Uh, I mean, this is the proclamation of John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he's saying that, he's saying Jesus is coming, right? Wherever Jesus comes, there is the kingdom. And wherever Jesus is, according to his promise, there is his kingdom. And this is in the midst of our greatest depth. This is in the midst of our greatest sin. This is in the midst of, in the face of death, in the face of death itself, the last enemy, there is the kingdom of God for the Christian. Why? Because the Lord is there with his word and sacrament. But wouldn't you say the evangelical has a, just as you pointed out, has a faulty Christology? But he also has a faulty ecclesiology as well because he doesn't consider the church as a part or in the kingdom or the maybe the object of the kingdom. That's very interesting. That is very interesting. Yeah, it's like this, what is it then? If it's not the kingdom, what is it? And of course, there's a misunderstanding of, the, of that kingdom talk, uh, you know, the papacy. Uh, particularly in the Middle Ages, leveraged that whole business of church as kingdom to uh, to arrogate to itself political royal powers. That's a that, that's a misunderstanding. And then you have the other misunderstanding, which uh, I'm not sure. I mean, evangelicals get caught up in this, uh, but I'm sure that there's others uh, when they look at society and trying to make society the kingdom, if we could just get Christians into the political world, if we could just get Christians into the you know secular field, if we could get Christians to be influence makers, then we can bring about the kingdom on earth. Good. And again, it's divorced from the church. Or the church is an instrument of that. Right, but but it is, not, it is not coterminous with the with the uh, with the church. Well, you know, one of the things I think we talked about this on one of our previous podcasts about the fact that we just need to do an entire podcast on the kingdom, and what the scripture is saying about the kingdom because this it it is really cattywampus when we start talking about kingdom, and to a certain degree, fair enough. I mean, we don't we don't roll in a kingdom in 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 our day. And so as a result of that, we do have to maybe um, take a couple steps up uh, to try to understand what Jesus is saying here. But I will say this, when he talks about the kingdom, it's not symbolic. It's n- that's good. It is not symbolic. That's, that's good. <laughs> oh, oh uh, I mean, in our thinking, he's not symbolic, right? But also in in Pastor Santi's thinking, it's not symbolic. Right. He believes in the kingdom. It's not something that represents the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God. Even though he's a little bit scattered on what that that looks like. Correct. And so we look backward and forward in communion. 
We're looking backward to what he has done for us in bringing us, providing salvation, and we're going forward to what awaits us when we are with him. And we get glimpses of this in the book of Revelation in the scenes that John sees in heaven with the saints around the throne of God and awaiting for the culmination of the kingdom. And at the end of Revelation, 19 through the end of the book, as Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom and all that that employs and the new heaven and the new earth, when we will celebrate this together with all the saints from all time around the throne with him. I'm not a huge fan of the canticle in uh, setting one of the Lutheran divine service in, in the Lutheran service book, um, This is the Feast. But in light of what Pastor Santi has just said, I think I want to sing it every single Sunday <laughs> because it is the words straight from the song uh, in Revelation 19 through the end. And it's a confession that Jesus acts according to his promise in Matthew 28, the last words, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the simple fact. The kingdom and heaven and the reign of God is present wherever Christ is with his word and sacrament. And it, it confesses that in the face of this kind of schlock, sloppy thinking, and in the face of uh, unbelief and, and everything like that. But do you see here in the evangelical mind how it's not just they're out to lunch on the sacraments. It's like it's built upon faulty doctrines all over the place. You've got this dispensational view, and then you start adding other oddities. It just seems that there are multiple levels of sloppy thinking. And, and, and they all work neatly together, somehow or other. Somehow or another, one can live their entire life believing these things. You fit all the parts together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Lutherans are perfectly comfortable with this kind of thing. In fact, they're even more comfortable with it. They don't need to put the puzzle together. All we need is God's word and, and what he plainly says. And there are many things in the scriptures that, that simply have to be held in tension with one another and will not be resolved but in the eschaton. That's the way it is. We're happy with it. Gottes Wort über alles. God's word over everything. So why we do this, again, is all centered on this idea of what he has done in salvation, past, present, and future. Looking at the past and what he has provided, how we came to salvation, the present of who I am now in Christ, and the future, what awaits us in him, in the fulfillment of salvation. Pastor Bruss, I have led many communion services in the evangelical world. There was not a soul who was thinking all these things that he's telling us to remember. There was nobody thinking about in the past what Jesus did for us and in the future what's going to come about. Nobody. Most people are just, they're getting up in front of everybody and they just want to make sure they don't spill anything on them. I'm not saying they're not reverent. I'm not saying they're not pious. But most of them are just, they're coming up and there's a sense of thankfulness for saving, saving the likes of me. Mm -hmm. So is there, um, are the words of institution recited um, in an evangelical service uh, like regularly or irregularly? It depends. And then sadly, I want to say no. I think you know. I, I, I do. I do think that if the words, uh, if the if the words of institution are recited, which um, which is a restoration of the Lutheran um, 
of the Lutheran Reformation. The in, in Catholicism, they were sort of whispered over the bread and over the wine. For Luther, they were a declaration. Look, it's the word of God; it must be proclaimed. And I would say that that pos. I want to say two things. Number one, I don't think that most Lutherans are going up and saying. Wow, you know, think about what Jesus did in the past, think about what he's going to do in the future, and think about what he's doing right now. They're not thinking about that necessarily all in one fell swoop. But over the course of life, they, they are, you know, these things, you know, are, come, are brought to mind simply by what the Lord Jesus says. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. And that cannot but, and, and when you, you and I, you know, distribute the, the host and the, and the chalice. Take, eat, this is the true body of Christ, uh, which is given for you. Take, drink, this is the true blood of Christ, which was shed for you. This is calling to their mind all the time what Christ has done. Thanks be to God. Well, then on top of that, if you remove the benefit of the Lord's Supper in the forgiveness of sins, Mm -hmm. so as you've said before, if faith cometh by hearing and your faith is nourished by the forgiveness of sins, if you remove that element and it really is all left up to you. I mean, you need to be consumed with you being active in your thoughts, whether you're thinking about the past of what Christ has done, the future, the culmination of your salvation, all of that. It really, it, you, the ball is left in your court. Good, and especially if there's no there's no recitation of the verba. Correct. And if there is no distribution formula that says what the thing is that you're getting. Then you then you are left on your own. Then you're just munching, you know, what like you're, you're like the Psalm one guy, right? Meditating like, <laughs> I think the Hebrew word there is chewing the cud, or like masticating. Masticating, yeah, 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 right. You're just you're, it's true, physical and mental mastication. I don't know, whatever. The meal also signifies fellowship, especially in the culture in which it was instituted, and that. Middle Eastern culture where hospitality and meals went hand in hand. Where to sit down and have a meal with someone was significant. You were sharing life together. You were extending fellowship and hospitality and communion with the people that you sat down around the table to eat with. All right, Pastor Bruss, I'm sure you want to say something about that. There's a little bit more than merely signifying fellowship with God, right? Uh, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 16 and following. This is what Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. For Paul, this is not merely a significance, right? It's not merely signifying fellowship with God. It is fellowship in the blood of Christ. This is a big difference. If, if you say that the, body, uh, that the bread and wine merely signify or represent Christ's body and blood, then all you have is a signified or a represented fellowship with God in the sacrament. The fact of the matter is, Uh, When it is, as it is, the true body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then your fellowship with God that's 
created through the sacrament is a real fellowship with God, not just a represented fellowship with God. In other words, the, the meal enacts God's reconciliation with humanity. So he's taking the stance of hospitality. He's using hospitality as a category, I mean, which we've seen before, and I think you've mentioned he's mixing categories, correct? In the sense that he's taking hospitality between fellow humans and he's equating it somehow or another to this divine human hospitality. Exactly. Yes. And I don't think those two things, uh, I mean, this is, this is the square peg in the round hole. I, I would I would think so, right? Uh, and think about the meal, the, the the Passover meal itself. Was that a meal about hospitality? No, no. And and so uh, we have this meal of Jesus built on and and uh, extended out of the Passover. And so the way that we need to think about this is is not from the 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 lens of Greco-Roman hospitality, but uh, based upon the Passover meal which was a meal of redemption, a meal of God's reconciliation um, through the blood of the Lamb. And the meal signifies that. First, with God. We have fellowship, we have communion with God. Through salvation, through Jesus Christ, we have been accepted by God. A holy God has extended to us an invitation to sit down and eat with us. This was the real issue in Jesus' life, wasn't it? Jesus is eating not with the holy righteous people, but he's over there eating with the sinners and the tax collectors and so forth. And the, this, it was scandalous. Why? Well, it wasn't just because Jesus was sitting there eating, but it's what the sitting there eating represented. Jesus is accepting those people. Now, I love this point that Pastor Santi is making because he is saying that Jesus got into a whole lot of trouble for sitting and eating with sinners. Granted. Well, guess what he still does today? Sits and eats with sinners. That's, a, that's an excellent point, and it, it's, it's actually even more real than Pastor Santi imagines. Uh, just as real as it was that Christ was sitting in the, in the dining room of Zacchaeus eating with him, so real is it today in the sacrament of the altar when Christ comes with his body and blood. And in Pastor Santee's very words, was that scandalous for Jesus to do it? Yes, it was. And in the evangelical world, somehow or another, it's still seen as scandalous that Christ comes and sits and eats with sinners. <laughs> he is fellowshipping, communing with those individuals. Jesus is extending, and as we understand Jesus to be God... Jesus, as God, is sitting there extending fellowship and acceptance to this group of people that were ostracized by the holy, righteous people of that society. While we were sinners, Christ died for us that we might know the righteousness of God, that we might be adopted into the family of God. So we now have reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And God invites us to his table in the communion elements. To follow up on that point about Jesus, you know, really coming and eating with sinners and how this is a scandal to the, to the um, evangelical mind, the sacrament is for the forgiveness of sins. It is not for 
remembrance. Uh, that's not the end goal of it. It is for the forgiveness of sins. And so there can be no celebration, no true celebration of the sacrament of the altar without it being celebrated among sinners. And even with that, if you look back to the life of Christ, let's just start with the life of Christ. We could look back further, actually. But when you look back to the life of Christ, hasn't Christ been catechizing us all along, teaching us very slowly from even his birth? Like, where is he born? He's born in Bethlehem. What's it mean? House of bread. He's born and he's placed in what? In a manger. What do you do with what's in a manger? You eat it. I mean, it goes on and on through this. Couldn't you look as well at when Jesus miraculously feeds thousands of people and that he does miraculous things with both food and drink? He's catechizing us. He is. And, and you know, this extends beyond just those sort of, and I don't want to, uh, you know, understand this label correctly, beyond those sort of crude illusions. Oh, no right? doubt, no doubt. Um, where, where Jesus comes and brings healing— Later, St. Paul connects uh, receiving the sacrament of the altar unworthily with death. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? That wherever Christ is, he comes and brings uh, healing that is not, not just spiritual, but also physical. And a misuse of the sacrament leads to, uh, in, in Corinth at least, chapter 11, uh, leads to death. Well, we and sickness and sickness. Christ's death and resurrection is book-ended, as it were, by the Lord's Supper. We have it on Thursday night where it's instituted here just a couple days later. That's really that's really excellent. That's really excellent. Uh, in, in the kingdom, right? And of course, Luke makes a point of this. He says, uh, I will not eat this meal until I eat it with you again in my kingdom. Well, here it is. Christ has risen from the dead. For the bulk of my life, all of that was cast aside. We've talked about this earlier, I think, in this podcast about uh, what leads one into that. And uh, it, is a, it is indeed a mystery. And hopefully what we're doing is clarifying how the scriptures teach precisely um, this all over the place. We also have fellowship with one another. Through Jesus Christ, we are one body. We are one in Christ. It's interesting, Jesus set this up. It was not an individualistic meal. They fellowship together as one in Christ. He's exactly right that the fellowship with God in the sacrament of the altar implies or brings about a fellowship among believers. The first one comes first, the fellowship with God. And uh, so it's, it's often very helpful to think about the relationships established through the sacrament of the altar as a vertical and a horizontal relationship. All believers have a vertical relationship with the, with the Heavenly Father through the sacrament of the altar. But inasmuch as we have that vertical relationship, we also have a horizontal relationship, becoming members of the body of Christ. Where is the reference that deals with, out of all of this grain, we're baking one loaf and we're all eating this one loaf, whereas all of this, this cluster of grapes is all brought together into one to create, uh, to create the wine. That's in the Didache. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. Yeah, so that's in the Didache. Luther picks up this language, too, uh, that, that God is, um, you know, goes and plucks grains from, from all over the world and bakes them into the one loaf of the church. And I think there's a, there are definitely 
Eucharistic overtones to what he's saying there. All we're saying is we agree with Pastor Santi here. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is, uh, the, you know, the one thing that he's saying that we can wholeheartedly pick embrace. up on and embrace. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Who can come to the table? Well, as we understand it, this is an invitation to believers to come to the table. Why? Because as a remembrance and celebration of salvation in Jesus Christ, only those who have experienced salvation can remember and celebrate it. Okay, I know you get a little bit queasy when you hear this uh, experience salvation language. Yes, I do. <laughs> but what would you say about what he said thus far, the point that he's made? This is a meal for believers, without question. I'm, I'm fine with where he's going thus far, but I'm sure that there are going to be lots of asterisks coming. It's really just that straightforward. Jesus invites those who have come to salvation in him to come celebrate and remember that salvation. And so believers are invited to do that. Non-believers cannot celebrate that. They cannot celebrate and remember what they do not have. And so for someone to come to the table, you first have to come to salvation in Christ so that you have something to remember and celebrate at the table. Otherwise, you're just eating some bread and drinking and it has no meaning. So this is a meal, this is an invitation for believers. So he is right that it is for believers only, but could we just take a step back, maybe just a brief history lesson? In the early church, it wasn't just for Christians. It was those who have been catechized and baptized. And baptized. Even in the evangelical world, and I've heard, I've heard this from other evangelicals, if you're not baptized, it's okay. You, if you're a believer in Christ and you're, you've not been baptized for whatever reason, come on forward and partake of the Lord's Supper. Whereas in the early church, they would have, uh, from what I've read, uh, they would have the service, and then all of those who are not completely catechized, let's say they're in process, or those who aren't catechized at all, and certainly not those who are baptized, they are asked to leave. This is where we get closed communion because the doors are now closed because the only ones who can partake of the Lord's Supper are those who've been confirmed, or I should say catechized, uh, examined, and baptized. And right, that's there's that's exactly right. So notice how how things have changed over now granted, I mean we're talking about 2000 years of church history, but wow, we have just lo we just keep lowering the bar, lowering the bar all the time. This is a a dramatic lowering of the bar just to say any believer uh, whether they're baptized or not. Well, let's see how Pastor Santi continues. And finally, let's move into the realm of how. How do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? How do we observe this? Well, if you remember, there are only the four passages in Scripture, the three in the Gospels that are really fairly identical and tell us what Jesus did in instituting the Lord's Supper, and then the one passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks a little bit about it. So when it comes to how we do it, we need to understand that as with most things that involve the worship and structure and practice of the church, we're not given a whole lot of information. We're told what, but we're not told how most of the time. Now, this, this kind of angers me a little bit. He's brought up the point that it's only mentioned four times. It's, all, it's only there four times, which is a considerable amount, actually, in Scripture to have, to have one thing 
mentioned four different times. And, and I mean, as you've pointed out many, many times, that's to be blind to all the illusions, and it's to be blind to the specific times when it actually is mentioned elsewhere. Uh, so, for example, in Acts 2.42, the breaking of the bread. I mean, give me a break. It's being talked about there. So, you know, let's grant him that, that what he's talking about is only Christ's institution. Fine. Four times. That's still an awful lot. But even those four times, as he's done throughout this whole sermon, he doesn't believe what Christ says about it. He, he's come up with a different interpretation. He is of a different spirit here when it comes to this sacrament. He doesn't even call it a sacrament. You're, you're, you're right. He doesn't. And is it the case that, that we're totally blank on how this thing is celebrated? Well, it's fairly clear. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, there's a recitation of the of the words of institution. The whole actio, the whole action is undertaken where the appointed representative of Christ himself recites Christ's words. Do this, do this, he says, in remembrance of me. So the actual recitation of the words is the doing this in remembrance of Christ. And then what does he say? He says, take, eat. What does this mean? That means that the person is handing it out and people are eating it. There's an awful lot we can know about what happened. And he's already made a reference to this prior when he said that this is a public meal. Good. Right. This isn't something you do off in a corner. We're already seeing, just by the references that are there, some insight into how it is to be administered. Good. And, you know, let's go a step further that uh, you, you say it's a public meal. Let's go one step further. It is a churchly meal. And we can see this throughout the scriptures. This is intended by Christ for his believers. And, of course, he's already mentioned this, but this is an important thing. So from what we've talked about, can we come up with a picture of what the minimum is? Absolutely. And we can even go further than that. We can think about an altar. And we can look back in the Old Testament, and as we've mentioned before, in Psalm 23, he, he establishes a table in, in the presence of my enemies. I mean, we can just kind of draw these, these lines between these dots that have already been provided for us. In the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, and say, okay, this is a very, I want to say, uh, centric part of our worship together. Good. And can, can can we even make more comments? <laughs> Please. We want to do that. I mean, <clears throat> we're talking about bread. What kind of bread was Jesus using? Unleavened bread. Is it an absolute requirement? I don't think so. But there's got to be bread. Can it be crackers? Doritos? Goldfish? No. No. <laughs> and what does Christ give them to drink? He gives them the chalice, the cup. What's in the cup? The fruit of the vine. What is the fruit of the vine in ancient Israel? Friends, I can guarantee you, it is not Welch's grape juice. What? <laughs> well, go on. <laughs> but why Why do we say it's not Welch's grape juice? Well, number one, because grape juice wasn't invented until Welch's came along and there was refrigeration. Exactly. You could not keep the fruit of the vine for longer than a day or two before it went uh, completely spoiled. And they didn't. They simply didn't. They processed it immediately into wine. So what you're saying is we can look back pretty easily with just the text that we have and simple common sense to say, okay, we're, we're starting to get a picture now of how this is to be administered. 
Correct. And we don't have to leave that up then to our own imaginations. No. And, and you know, can, can I make one more comment? You know, there, there's a fascinating allusion here in Acts chapter 20, and we'll, we'll come to it again, I think. But this is what Luke says there, Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. So here we've got another thing. When, when should it be regularly celebrated? The first day of the week. What's the first day of the Jewish week? Sunday. So what we're saying here is that there's a lot of information that we glean from the Gospels and Acts. And if we just looked at those, we could say, okay, we're starting to get a fuller picture here of how the sacrament is to be observed. Absolutely. I, I, I think so. And, and, you know, in this Acts, in this other passage from Acts, there's even a sermon that goes along with it. I think back to uh, the garden with the sacrament there. And I realize that's a really crude illusion, but how there's food, how there is a not a blessing attached to that food, but a curse. Actually, there was a blessing attached to, to, the tree of to life. another tree Correct. and another fruit, but there was a curse attached to the fruit that Adam and Eve partook of. Correct. And so is the point, is there a curse attached to, to this one? There is a curse attached to this one for those who are not believers. Correct. But and this... it's, be- it's because it is what it is. It is the body and blood of Christ. There's no curse attached. If, if you just say, you know, poobah, I'm eating some bread and wine, and I'm not remembering what Jesus did, uh, well, what's the curse attached to that? Nothing. Right? But, but if it is the body and blood of Christ, and you are, as it were, urinating on it with your unbelief, Believe me, there's a curse attached to that. So we have two trees in the garden. One fruit is a fruit that has a blessing attached to it. The other one is a fruit which has a curse attached to it. Obviously, Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden fruit that has the curse attached to it. They are then barred from eating the fruit that has the blessing attached to it, or they would remain in their sin forever. And now you're saying that this body and blood that we partake of, it has a blessing and a curse attached to the exact same thing, a blessing for those who believe and a curse attached to those who do not, who partake and who do not believe. Correct. And this is what uh, St. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let a person Examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We could unpack that passage an awful lot, but let's just get it out there. Uh, There is judgment connected with the sacrament of the altar when it's received in unbelief. And so there's this Eucharistic prayer. I think we've mentioned it before. It's the one that draws this parallel between the tree of life uh, in the garden and the tree of life with Christ upon it. He is now the fruit that we eat. Blood and water come from him. I mean, it is mind-blowing when you start to see what the Bible is actually saying. I mean, let me let me just go uh, way out in the stratosphere here for a second. You think about how Saul was, King Saul, was trying to kill David with this spear. And amazingly, you know, David sidestepped it. He, yep. he, he's an agile guy. That spear was meant for Christ. And that's where that spear ultimately landed, was in his side, where blood and water flow. Yes. 
You think about how the creation of Adam brought about the creation of Eve, and from her from his side came his bride. From Christ's side comes his bride, the church that is nourished through baptism and the blood. It's, it's everywhere. The sacrament is everywhere in the scriptures when you begin to look for it. Correct. We're given a lot of freedom in how we go about worshiping in the church. Why is that? Because in the Old Testament, God gave Israel very specific instructions about how to do everything. Not only do you need to sacrifice, but this is how you go about doing it. Not only do you need to bring your offerings, but this is how you bring them. He gave them a lot of detail about how, but that was a monolithic structure. It was one nation that was a theocracy that was the same culture altogether. The church exists not as one nation, not as one culture, not as one ethnic group, but over thousands of years of history in all corners of the world, in all kinds of different societies with all kinds of different things going on in ethnic groups and languages and so forth and so on, the Bible would need to be a whole lot thicker if God was to delineate how the church is to function in its worship in all of these different societies and places and times and so forth and so on. That is a farce. To think that now it's kind of like, hey, whatever you want to do, that he or you know the church can't go back and look at how the early Christians interpreted what was going on. I mean, you've already mentioned the Didache. You know, there's, there's other writings that one could go and look and see exactly how the early church worshiped. In my ears, I filter what he's saying as a justification for their church doing whatever their church wants to do. And he, he's right in a sense, uh, and, and, and I think you would agree with that. Uh, we would definitely not expect that the celebration of the Eucharist in 175 AD would look like the way it does today in 2017 AD. Fair it wouldn't enough. Be, wouldn't be exactly alike, right? I mean, we we, we can concede this. I, I mean, this brings in ecclesiology and and all sorts of things that he has. I I would guess just absolutely no concept about that the local church is is part of the universal church, and the universal church lives toward itself in love and demonstrates its you know this vertical fellowship that we all have in Christ in certain ways, and that God is not a God of disorder, but of order, and that we are called upon to do everything decently and in order. To that end, the church has, over the millennia, established certain things in its worship that actually proclaim what the church teaches and are standard parts of what we call it liturgy. They're standard parts of what Christians do. And what's astonishing to me I think about this is that is is what you said. There, there's this sort of unfettered freedom to do whatever the heck you want to do. Now, look, if you're a missionary and you go to Africa and you establish uh, a, a congregation in a certain place, are you giving up the Agnus Dei? Are you giving up the O Christ, Thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world in the ritual surrounding the the uh, Eucharist? I'm saying no. The reason I'm saying no is because the Agnus Dei so beautifully confesses the real presence of Christ. Are you giving up the Sanctus? 
the uh, you know the holy 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 Lord God of Sabaoth heaven and earth are full of your glory as part of the liturgy again I'm saying no why because it's a proclamation that God himself is ascending is descending to earth in this sacrament coming to you with the forgiveness of sins just as he came to Isaiah with a with a burning coal touched to his lips to forgive him so the point I guess is okay fine whatever you know this unfettered freedom is in a sense there but it is it is limited by christian love by the not implicit but the explicit horizontal fellowship that all christians share i'll tell you a story that i'm thinking of as you're as you're uh, blathering on <laughs> as you're saying that I'd spent several years studying the confessions and reading a lot of Luther and making uh, Lutheran friends and uh, thinking through a lot of these things that we're talking about now. And I was with a Lutheran pastor, and for whatever reason, we pulled into a local Lutheran church. I just wanted to show him. He didn't live in our town, but I just wanted to show him this church, and we walked in. We were there for about an hour with him just pointing out the different features that were within this church. Now, I'd been to this church several times, but it had never, I'd never been taught the different furniture in the church. I was familiar with some things, but not to the degree that he was. Well, then we went to my evangelical church, and, uh, and I was pretty proud to show him our church. We walked into the sanctuary, to which he said, he looked around, and he said, Nice drum set. <laughs> it, it it is interesting uh, that kind of um, th- this is in a sense bringing this conversation full circle from where we started. Right? There's a real earthiness about you know even in in the midst of its formality, and I I, I really want to stress this in the midst of its formality, in the midst of its decoration uh, that appears so regularized and so on. All of that is a proclamation of the incarnationality of the God of Scripture, that he comes to real people in real time, and he's trying to do something, right? What is he trying to do? He's trying to preach his word. He's trying to absolve them. He's trying to baptize them. He's trying to give them his body and blood for the forgiveness of their sins. And the architecture itself of the church, as it's developed over the years, the architecture itself proclaims this. I realized in that moment that what we had done is that we had taken our freedom that Pastor Santi here is talking about. We had taken our freedom and again thrown out everything that is proclaiming Christ. Isn't that the fascinating thing? The freedom. So Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. This is Galatians 5, chapter 1. Uh, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. And the point that Paul is, uh, well, okay, this is the question. How do we use this freedom? Do we use it Christically or do we use it however the hell we want to use it? Paul goes on in the rest of the chapter to talk about the, the shape of that freedom. And the shape of that freedom is Christic. It is, it is Christ-centered. And so it, isn't it a shame that, that you, you, you bandy about this notion of freedom only to wind up with a worship space, a liturgy or non-liturgy, uh, um, a way of administering the sacrament that does not proclaim 
what you're trying to proclaim. Right. In your freedom, what you wind up with is four bare walls and a pulpit or a lectern. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? And, and, and all the while you're saying, we're proclaiming Christ. Well, no, you're not. I mean, the, the proclamation is there. I'm not going to say that that's not there, but there's nothing else. Yeah, is there, is there a window uh, in there for a two-year-old child to look at where the ram is caught in the thicket? Is there a window in there showing the crucified Christ? Uh, is there a crucifix in there showing the crucified Christ? No. Right. And and so the point is, the proclamation stops short. The minute that you're no longer speaking, it's done. So I realize what we're doing is we're taking Pastor Santi's point, and we're, we're running further than the point he's trying to make. But these are the natural consequences of where he's going here. And so in order to allow the church to adapt to the different cultures and languages and societies and places that the gospel needs to go, we've been told what to do, but we've been given a lot of freedom in how we go about doing it. So when it comes to the Lord's Supper, when we come to things like frequency, no instruction is given on the frequency with which we remember. What are we told? We are told to remember. Oh, that that is that is great right there. I mean, it's terrible, yeah. but but boy, we are just again. I wish I would have counted the number of times that he has said the word "remember." I mean, that is the driving emphasis here. But again, he's also wrong, isn't he? Yes, he is. And and uh, a couple thoughts come to mind. Why is the supper needed to remember? Right. I mean, what's what's the what's the point? I've got the word. I can read the word. I've got memorized psalms. I can memorize. I can you know recall those. I've got Bible verses you know chalked away in my head. Why can't I just uh, remember in that way? <laughs> okay, but the point is, he he might say yes. You should remember in that way. And I would say when, and he would say every day, constantly. My response to that would be, why not use the sacrament of the altar more often? I think he actually makes that point here. Oh, he does. Very good. How often do we need to do that? We're given some latitude there. We're given some freedom. Maybe we need to do it every day. Maybe we need to do it together once a week, maybe once a month. We're given some freedom into how we go about doing that. But we are told what to do. We are to do this. We are to remember. We're just given some latitude in the frequency with which we do that. Okay, let's go back to Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. All right, here we've got it. We've got this gathering of the Christians on, on a Sunday, and what are they doing? They're breaking bread. St. Paul in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I've often been uneasy using this verse as a proof that we should do it often. However, we have it earlier in 1 Corinthians that the, the Christians come together uh, and they come together regularly on the Lord's Day. So this is a weekly celebration. So I would say that the New Testament actually establishes a weekly regimen. One of the issues that exists in our culture with the church especially is do we have open or closed communion? Open communion is, allows any believer to participate. Closed communion allows only believers who are members in good standing with this particular church to participate. Uh, 
And so there are different churches who respond to this question differently. Uh, here at this particular church, we practice open communion. We allow any believer to participate. The reason we do that, when you, we practice closed communion, uh, the, the reasoning is usually that we want to protect the participation in communion, that those people who are not uh, walking with the Lord, uh, who may have sin in their lives, uh, who would be unworthy to participate in communion, we want to protect us as a church and those individuals from partaking in communion when they should not. Uh, and so many churches um, choose closed communion, their reasoning being, we know our people and where they are, and if other believers come in, we do not know your circumstances or situation, um, and so we prefer that you partake of communion with your own body of believers and that you just observe when you are in this particular location. All right, I know that I know that you get a kick out of walking with the Lord, that type of uh, that type of language. This is how evangelicals roll, though. I mean, with that type of language, everybody in the congregation who heard him say that, I mean, they that's code, and they all understand, you know, the inside talk. What does it mean? Walking with the Lord. Yes. Yeah, that you're having your devotions, that you are reading your Bible, that you are living this sanctified life. But then at the very next turn, he talks about people who have sin in their life. Who doesn't? Exactly. And see, this is what the sacrament is for. It's for those who have sin in their life. But somehow or another, you're barred from coming to the sacrament because you're a sinner. So to prove that from Jesus' words, that it's that it's for sinners. Well, it's in the verba itself, the words of institution, but they're not going to quote what, the words of institution. Oh, they're okay. going to focus on the remembrance right. part. Right, and so what in the words of institution, what is what are those words, just so that our listeners know? This is given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Bingo. Bingo. It is for sinners. Luther talks about this, and, and I'm uh, just reading here from the uh, small catechism. Who receives the sacrament worthily? And he says that fasting and bodily preparation is good outward discipline, but that person is uh, truly worthy who has faith in these words given for you and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is the thing that makes worthiness, isn't it? Um, so not walking with the Lord— it's 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 sinners who recognize their own un- unworthiness. But didn't Pastor Santi just say that those who are sinners are barred from receiving? I think he did. And but here's the thing: uh, wouldn't we also, you know, doesn't proper church discipline require this? That unrepentant sin is not uh, is is unworthy reception of the sacrament. Why is that? Because the person who is not repenting of their sin, is not coming there for the forgiveness of sins. They're saying, this thing, whatever it is that I'm holding on to and not willing to to let go of, this sin that I uh, have no intention of giving up and that that I'm not sorry for, doesn't need to be forgiven. And so they're not coming for the forgiveness of sins. They're coming for another reason. But this brings up a whole other point. No evangelical is going to church to have his sins forgiven. (laughs) <laughs> which is which is astonishing. This is not on the radar for the evangelical 
Remember the directionality? Mm-hmm. You're going to please God. You are not going for God to do anything for you, especially if you're saved. Already. You've, you've, it's already in the bag, right? Yeah. Isn't? Uh, can we pause and just talk about that for just a moment? I don't know if this is just a tangent that we don't want to go down, but I am, I am convinced that the demise of the church in America is linked precisely to the fact that people think they're going to church to do something for God and not that they're going to church for God to do something to them. You could extrapolate that and say, where the church goes, the culture will follow. So we have a a culture steeped in sin, and it's because what you just said regarding the church, that the Christians aren't going to have going to church to have God absolve them of sins of their sins and so then the culture just reflects that i mean so obviously the evangelical is steeped in all of these sins of commission and omission greed and uh, perhaps the in, in, invisible ones the ones that are that are uh, tamed by being bourgeoisified so yes i could concede to that point completely that there has been a movement that has taken place long before you and i got here it's got the name church, and it has a bunch of people doing a lot of churchy things, but it's like a, um, it's like a husk. Like the nut is, is totally gone. It's just a shell. There, there's no meat in there at all. It, it looks like a nut, but it's filled with bugs. It, it, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we choose to here, as I said, practice open communion. This isn't a choice that a church can make willy-nilly. We don't, we don't have freedom in this matter. We have uh, the— <laughs> He just got through telling us about how much freedom that we've got. Exactly. He did, didn't he? Um, but there, there is no freedom here. And I, and I want to say that it's not, it's not a tyrannical lack of freedom. Uh, it's just that the church has been given a, a huge responsibility, and her pastors a huger responsibility— uh, for the right administration of the sacraments. I'm, I want to point uh, people to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 1. St. Paul, speaking uh, the, the us here that he talks about is, is, is himself and Sosthenes, who are uh, the authors of this letter. He says, this is how one should regard us, that is me and Sosthenes, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Okay. Now, what is a steward? Uh, let's talk about what a steward is. A steward is somebody who has given care of the property of another to, to take care of that property according to the dictates of the master. And so here Paul is saying, look, we're stewards. We're stewards of something. Here he says that we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Let's not misread that word. Um, this is not we're steward, stewards of the spooky things about God or stewards of the things about God we can't understand. Uh, the word mystery in the New Testament, in the Greek world, in fact, refers to specifically sacraments. So there were these religions known as mystery religions, and the mystery religions had sacraments. That is, they had physical things connected with with religious doctrines and so on. <clears throat> so when Paul talks about the mysteries, he's talking about physical things connected with the promises and command of God. What are those? Those are baptism and the sacrament of the altar. So Paul is saying, look, God has put these into our hands to take care of for him. 
and we are duty-bound to uh, administer them as he would like us to administer them. Now, what is closed communion? Closed communion is the faithful administration, the faithful stewardship of God's sacraments. In other words, the use of those sacraments the way God wants them to be to be given. Why do you practice closed communion? You practice closed communion so that you do not give the body and blood of Christ to somebody for their judgment. You were talking about this earlier, right? The tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil and, uh, and the tree of life. One had blessing, one had curse. And, uh, and, and you pointed out rightly that in the sacrament of the altar, uh, there is curse because it is a very holy thing. And uh, to take it unworthily, that is without faith, that Christ gives there what he says, the forgiveness of sins, and does it the way he says, his body and blood, you drink it for judgment. What's so interesting there is that passage that you just read. No evangelical picks up on that, where Paul is speaking about what a pastor does and the things that he is a steward of. An evangelical would look at that and just it, it bounces off of him when he sees the word mystery because he has no context for it. He doesn't really even know what, what Paul is even talking about. And there's a big difference between a mystery and a secret. Paul's not talking about something that's a secret. He's talking about something that the Lord has instituted, the Lord blesses, he has a command attached to it to do it, he has a curse attached to it if you do it incorrectly or without faith, he has a blessing attached to it if you do it in faith. It's a mystery. And this is where Luther is so wonderful when he says, how God does this, that is up to him. We're supposed to do what God tells us to do. We leave the rest up with him. And that's the mysterious part about it. If we should even read this word as being mysterious. Right? I, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to make too much out of the English translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's sad. We've talked about translations before. It's sad that that this word does get translated as mystery. Uh, I think the Jerome Bible, and I'd have to look at this and verify it, I think it translates it as sacraments, and that's the proper way to translate this word. That's that's the English equivalent of this word uh, from the ancient Greek world. Which was sacramentum? Sacramentum, yes. And I'll explain that as briefly as I can. We do not feel that it is our job to judge people. To me, that comes out of left field there. It is not our job to judge people. Isn't this what the Pope recently said? Who am I to judge? When he said that, I just wanted to say, if the Pope can't judge, who can? Uh, And judgment has been given into the hands of the ministers of the church. It it actually has. Not to be wielded in in an ungodly way, but the Lord has given us his Ten Commandments. And we are to apply those to the lives of our people clearly. If somebody is committing adultery, am I not to judge? Seriously? What am I doing then as their pastor? Except for patting him on the back and saying, go on, stay in your sin. Uh, That is the job of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's that's the job of the Holy Spirit, Pastor Bross. It is. But didn't the Holy Spirit write the scriptures? And didn't he give us the means whereby judgment can and should be made. You mean that I'm supposed to take the log out of my eye before I tell you about the speck that's in yours? There is a 
a process for judging. Precisely. Very good. Yes, yes. And and so, yes, I, I do have to take the speck out of, or the log out of my own eye before I can judge others. And can't we see what the prophets have been doing all throughout the Old Testament where they stand up and whether it be John the Baptist who points to authority itself or whether it's the prophets who would go through the land, whether it is Jonah who would go through Nineveh. Aren't they all judging? They are. And isn't St. Paul judging? The works of the flesh are evident. Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now here's what he says. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A pastor is duty-bound to let this be known in his flock. Um, And so if you are a believer, then the opportunity to gather at the table with other believers and partake of communion to remember what uh, Christ has done for us in our salvation event, uh, we think that is open uh, to all who are believers. Um, Again, non-believers don't have any reason to partake of it because it has no meaning for them, but all believers can come celebrate. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have to be aware of the need for church discipline and things like that. Um, and so if, if sin arises and needs to be dealt with in the church, then we as a church certainly do need to be aware of that and deal with it biblically. But the purpose of communion is to remember salvation. How did we come to salvation? Did you clean yourself up to get saved? No. Were you worthy to be saved? No. We didn't clean ourselves up. We couldn't make ourselves right. We couldn't make ourselves worthy to be saved by God. And so if communion, if, if the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of that, then we probably ought to, I think, err on the side of the grace of God when we come to the table to partake of that event, rather than asking people to clean themselves up in order to come to the table. He speaks in such certainties. We probably ought to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. The, uh, the Christian pastor errs on the side of grace as much as he can uh, as a faithful steward of the mysteries. But if I have somebody walking into the congregation who's a member of a church body that denies the real presence in the sacrament, and that person receives the body and blood of Christ for their judgment because they, stand in, because they themselves stand in judgment over Jesus' own words, I cannot in good conscience give that to them. Let me talk for a moment about our approach to the table, um, because this often comes up in conversation. Is this a solemn event or a celebratory event? Often in conversation? This is something that comes up often? How many times do you hear something like this? Never. We, As Lutheran pastors, you just never hear it. And, and I, isn't the point that... Uh, the manner, um, I mean, it's, it's almost like it's asking the wrong question, right? Should we be uh, given high fives for Yahweh or should we be, um, you know, in our cups? And, uh, and what that does is it misses the, the point, right? And the point is that here God comes to you with his body and blood to forgive your sins. And, and so the reason for which you do it drives the way that you approach it. When you're making it up as you go along, you've got to come up with 
answers for these things. And I guess when you when you really analyze that answer, it really is the whole square peg and a round hole. Like you can beat it in there. Sure. <clears throat> so what do you mean by the square peg in the round hole? Well, you're deviating from what the sacraments are supposed to be, the meaning of them. So now you're coming up with the uh, the modus operandi, so to speak, of you have to make up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, t- I completely understand what you what you're what you're saying. For example, uh, you know if the crown jewels, right? Let's just take the crown jewels. Okay. Okay. If you were to go see the crown jewels, you would approach them in a certain way. But if you were to go see the glass box in which the crown jewels no longer are you would be at a loss for saying, what do I do with this, right? How, how do I approach this? Correct. And and that's, uh, I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, is, is I mean, that, is yeah. That right? yeah, I mean, like, um, you, you, there, I guess now you, you throw that out, there's so many uh, illustrations. It's um, waking up on Christmas morning in the joy of receiving a gift, but there's nothing There's nothing in the gift. You're, so what do you do? You, you get want me to be excited about something that I, that's not even there? Re- react appropriately to something that's not even there. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's the issue here, isn't it? You cannot need what you don't think you lack. I mean, is it, <laughs> does that work at all? <laughs> well, it probably does, right? Uh, if if you don't know if you don't know why you're coming for the forgiveness of sins, you have no clue how to how to even approach this thing, receive it. And you know, I just want to mention something else in 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 connection with this for people who are listening to this and saying scratching their heads and saying, yeah, wow, that's a great question. You know, should I be celebrating or should I be solemn? For 500 years, evangelical Lutherans, uh, in fact, you know, let us it's even longer than that, have been receiving the sacrament in the same exact way. They come to the altar of the Lord. They kneel down in penitence and in worship of what is there, and they, re- they simply receive what God wants to give them, which is his body and blood for the forgiveness of their sins. This has been going on for 500 years. There is not a Lutheran kid who, who by the time he is able to receive the sacrament doesn't know what he's supposed to do and how he's supposed to receive it. That is, do we need to be very austere and solemn and introspective and quiet when we come to the table? Or is this a celebration of joy and praise and thanksgiving? The reason this has become an issue is, has a lot to do with what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so let me turn there really quickly. In 1 Corinthians 11, um, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper to the church at Corinth. And he says things like, make sure you examine yourself. Don't partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And make sure you judge the body rightly before you partake of communion. Paul is speaking here to the church at Corinth about the Lord's Supper, and he goes through explaining, this is what Jesus did. This is my body, which was for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then verse 27, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. 
For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep or have died because you've done this unworthily. Okay, Pastor Bruss, so before we get to his commentary on those verses, what are you thinking? I'm thinking those verses need a commentary. And maybe not his? (laughs) And maybe not his, and I'm not sure exactly how uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is um, raising or even answering the question of whether one should be solemn or whether one should be celebratory. Let's see what Pastor Santee pulls out of this. And so some have read this um, and taken this to be to mean that when we come to the table, it needs to be a very serious and solemn event. We need to take time to examine ourselves, to confess our sin before God, to make ourselves acceptable to come before the table. Um, however, if we go back and read 1 Corinthians 11 in its totality, we get, a, I think, a different view of what Paul is speaking of here in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is speaking to the church about what they are doing in participating in communion. The Corinthian church had fallen into the habits of the culture around them. In the Greco-Roman culture around them, it was common for them to have meals in their houses. And you would invite people to come, but the rich and important people would sit in the dining room and be served there with the best food and the best wine and the best drink. The other poorer people and the unimportant people had to sit either in the atrium or the courtyard, and they were served whatever was left over. They were served the inferior food and the inferior drink. And this was happening in the church in Corinth. The church was gathering together to eat these meals, and then they would, do, they would have communion, they would have the Lord's Supper in the, with the meal, more, much like Jesus did with his disciples. In the midst of the Passover meal, he then did Uh, the Lord's Supper. And so that's what the church at Corinth was doing. But they were separating themselves, and the important people and the rich people were eating all of the good food, and Paul goes on to say that, that you're getting drunk. They are taking an excess of the food and drink, and some of you are drunk, and some of you are hungry. That is, the unimportant people and the poor people who are sitting out in the courtyard or the atrium area are not having sufficient food or drink because it's being taken by the important people inside in the dining room. What is Paul's issue with what is happening here? He says, while you are doing this, you are celebrating the Lord's table. What is the whole point of the Lord's table? It is to remember salvation. What did salvation do for us as believers? It created one body, one body of believers in Christ. We are all equal in Christ. There's no Jew or Greek, male or female, rich or poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The church in Corinth had separated themselves into at least two bodies, the important people and the unimportant people. And they were partaking of communion in the midst of this. And by that saying, we important rich people are more important as believers in Christ. And so therefore, it is okay for us to partake of communion in this way and to leave the rest of the church out there. This is what Paul is talking about when he talks about examine yourself and partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. And they were partaking of communion in a way that divided the church. And so when he says examine the body or judge the body rightly, he's not talking about the individual body. He's talking about the body of Christ. Judge the body of, that you are 
talking to, that you are participating in the body of the church, the body of Christ, rightly. That when you come to the table, it is with a proper understanding of who I am in relationship to the other believers. You can't stand it, can you? I cannot stand it. No, the, the, this, this, this judging rightly business is really interesting. Uh, so the word there in Greek is diakrino. Um, so it's, it's, it's discerning the body, and that's a much better translation. I'm looking at uh, ESV and actually 29, verse 29. They get it right, discerning the body. His account is sort of interesting, right? We've got this factionalism and all that sort of stuff, and we know that there's factionalism there. And in fact, in in uh, in in verses um, uh, 21 and 22 of chapter 11, Paul talks about you know the some uh, eat and drink to superfluity, and then others go away hungry, and and that's not a good thing. But look, let's go back and and ask the question: What does it mean to discern the body? Um, the word. Body. The, the last time this occurs in the context here is in uh, verse 24, right? This is my soma, this is my body, which is for you. There, Jesus, through Paul, is, is saying what it is that is in the sacrament of the altar. And what is it? Well, it's the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the real, present body of Christ in, with, and under the bread and wine. It, it would seem to me that, you know, if this whole business of factionalism is related in any way to this discernment of the body of Christ. I.e. the congregation? Well, no. Isn't that, wasn't that, that his That's argument? what he's saying. He's yeah, saying right. that the body is the congregation, right. right? But Paul's actually saying, look, you guys are partaking of the sacrament, and you don't even get what you're doing. You're receiving Christ's body for the forgiveness of sins, as we should be doing, and receiving his blood for the forgiveness of sins. But you're coming together and you're treating it like it's just a, a snack. And therefore, you have this weird orientation toward one another, where you got the richy riches and then you got the poor people who are hanging out in the corner. He's, he's got some truths here, uh, but he's entirely misreading verse uh, 29, judging rightly the body. Okay, number one, that doesn't even say that, right? That would be like dikaios krinon uh, tosoma. This is diakrinon tosoma, okay, in Greek, discerning the body. What do you see here? And so the root of all of this has to do with the fact, number one, that they don't realize it's the body of Christ for them for the forgiveness of their sins. Therefore, they don't recognize themselves as poor, miserable sinners in need of the grace of God, and therefore they take errors toward each other because, uh, you know, they're like these, the guys uh, in, in the parable um, for Septuagesima Sunday, right, where they get miffed because um, the first workers and the last get the same exact pay. Well, I think we've dealt with this issue before. If you recall, uh, one of the sermons that uh, we reviewed from David Platt he used this exact same line of argumentation. And uh, we even stopped. I said, I don't think I've ever even heard that line of reasoning before. And you said that it is found in some of your liberal churches, if I'm not mistaken, the, uh, the uh, liberal Lutheran churches. Yes, you, you'll find that in the liberal Lutheran churches who would like to practice uh, open communion. So they reread these words against the words themselves, right, and and make the discernment of the body. What they say is, look, pay attention to the unity of all believers in Christ. 
In other words, open your doors wide open, let everybody come forward and receive the, the sacrament. That's not what Paul's saying here. But this is what Santi's saying. I mean, he yes. is a dot, he is a co-opting, as it were, a view that is held by liberal factions. Who do not want that to say what it says. They don't want it to say that this is a discernment of the real presence. Fascinating. So you, when you talk about discerning the body, you've only got a couple of options. Either A, it's my personal body. Mm-hmm. B, it is the body of believers. Or C, it's the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And your argument is, this is the context of what Paul is addressing. It is C, the body of Christ, not the corporate body, and certainly not the individual believer. Correct. And, and you know, Paul can use that soma language, right, for the body of Christ. I mean, the body of Christ, the, the mystical body of Christ, the church, correct? Uh, I mean, we see that it, it comes actually later, just later in chapter 12. Uh, he talks about gifts within the body. But here's the thing, that mystical body of Christ is constituted through participation in the real body of Christ in, with, and under the bread in the sacrament of the altar. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says, um, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And that's the koinia. That's the, that's the, the I think it's a, met, well, it could be koinonia. Let me, let me just take a look. Can I do that real quick? Yes, you you are correct. It is the koino so the ochi koinonia tu somatos tu Christuestin. Is it not the a, a participation a koinonia in the body of Christ? So the the constitutive koinonia of the Christian Church, right? The the constitutive fellowship of the Christian Church is in the in the sacrament of the altar, and finally in the recognition of what the thing is. Uh, that it's for you for the forgiveness. I, I am a Christian only through the forgiveness of sins. And this is how you receive the forgiveness of sins. Exactly. So, all right, so what we're hearing is that the evangelical, or let me just say the sacramentarian. Can, could, we, could you define sacramentarian for us? So a sacramentarian is one that denies the sacraments, one right. that denies these gifts that God is actually giving him through physical means, uh, the benefits, all of that. That's what a sacramentarian is, which is odd because you would, you want to hear sacramentarian and it sounds like somebody who actually believes them. Actually, it's the other way around, somebody who actually denies them. So a, a sacramentarian is one that is going to look at these verses and come up with alternate views so that they don't say what they actually say, but on the other hand, they're going to believe all the words of Scripture, and they're even going to hold to the perspicuity of Scripture, and that it's very clear to anybody who reads it. Good. Yes, that's that's an irony, isn't it? Uh, there's a real blindness uh, over these things, and um, who knows, who knows, uh, well, you know, I think it's generations and generations of steeping in this stuff. Sure, and this is why, uh, as a former sacramentarian, um, you know, it took so long for me to, well, I've said it before, but having to unlearn what I had learned mm-hmm. and then going through a long period of time where I was just angry at the people who taught me incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And then finally you get to the point where you say, well, they they were just spouting off what was taught to them. It's not like they um, did it with any 
malcontent or We're maliciousness. Malice, yeah, yeah right. so they were just passing on to me what had been passed on to them. I believed it because cons- I considered the source and I could read it myself and see it for what it was. But it was um, it was wrong. It was wrong. That we are one in Christ together as one body. And so for those who have taken 1 Corinthians 11 to, uh, and over the years of the church, this has, has developed, have taken 1 Corinthians 11, I think a little bit out of context, to make communion or to make the Lord's table a very austere and solemn, introspective, individualistic time where you have to be quiet and you have to confess your sin so that you are worthy to come to the table and that makes it very introspective and very individualistic, I think we've misunderstood the whole purpose of what Paul is saying here. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was not individualistic, it was not introspective, and it was not a solemn time. He was sharing with them what he was going to do, which was solemn, but it was a celebratory activity that they were engaged in. They were celebrating the Passover. They were celebrating what God has done in saving his people. And Jesus is saying, I want you to continue to do this in remembrance and celebration of what I am going to do shortly from here. And so I don't think Paul is saying that this has to be an austere uh, time, certainly not an individualistic time. It needs to be a community time as the body of Christ comes together to celebrate this. So it can be a time of reflection. It can be a time of introspection or confession. If I come to church and there is sin in my life and I need to confess that, that certainly can be a part of what I'm doing as I'm coming to the table. I'm sorry, what did he just say? If I come to church and if there is sin in my life, then I should be introspective. I mean, so every other time I can be doing yippee and saying great Thank you, God, for, for your salvation. But No, I had a great I mean, week. I didn't sin at all. Exactly. What is this? This is just insanity. And you might expect this from, from this sort of mishmash of theology, but it's horrible theology, and people need to hear this. I mean, they really, really need to hear this. Look, the Lord expects you to be holy, just as he is holy. There is absolutely no question about it. But the Lord well knows that as long as you have this flesh around your neck, you are never going to achieve the holiness that he has for you. Uh, he wants you to improve in your holiness, but sin is going to cling to you until it, your body is put to death. And so this is what the Lord has done for you. He has given you your baptism in which you daily drown the old Adam and put him to death with Christ uh, and lay him in the grave and in which he raises a new man who wants to be righteous. That's number one. Number two, he gives you, as often as you desire it, the sacrament of his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. And, I mean, it's just like they're completely, like, do they not even look at these words, for the forgiveness of sins? I mean, what, what's the point? That's the, that's the whole telos, the whole aim of the sacrament of the altar is the forgiveness of sins. And if I am to receive it, I darn well better be a sinner. Well, and on top of that, to talk about the the Passover meal, sure, there's some, there was some celebratory aspects to it, but when Jesus did what he did in instituting the Lord's Supper, that was a, a game changer, right? Nobody is jumping up and down. I mean, these are Jews who've lived all their lives in hearing 
do not drink the blood, have nothing to do with the blood, the life is in the blood, all this. And then Jesus says here, by the way, let me tell you what, what I've been catechizing you all of these years. Here it is right now. Boom. This is a, there, there was nobody jumping up and down, nobody hands raised, eyes closed, uh, you know, swaying back and forth here. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, and, and this whole business with a Judas and di- dipping the <laughs> dipping the morsel of bread. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's going down this evening, too. But again, okay. going back, Pastor Bruss, when you use the examples of what the Lord has done and does in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, these things are eradicated. I mean, they're there, but they have totally, uh, they've been emasculated. There, there's nothing there. They are outward signs, and that's it. And you can't cling to them. You can't, you can't say uh, in the face of, of your sin or in the face of your death, thanks be to God that I am baptized, because there God made me his child. No, right. not at all. There's no comfort. And see, this, this is why in the evangelical world, there's no assurance. Right, there's no assurance. And, and you know, there's another aspect of that, right? It's this rear view mirror mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. And I would love to talk at some point uh, extensively about, the, about this remembrance business. It's, it's a horrible English translation. Even here, Paul glosses it. For as often as you uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. The remembering of the Lord, it's the Lord doing the remembering, not, not us doing the remembering. Yeah, when you say that about remembering, I mean, you think about how in the Old Testament, the Lord remembered Israel, the Lord remembered Moses, the Lord remembered the covenant he made with Abraham. I mean, this this is, the Lord is driving the verbs, as it were. He's the one who's doing these things. And to any evangelical who hears this schlock that they are the ones that they have got to remember, and then you actually understand that it is the Lord who remembers you, what a great blessing that is. Right, right. In the midst of your stinky sin, God remembers you. Amen. In faithfulness to his promises. As I individually am realizing I'm coming to celebrate salvation at the table, and I realize I've got sin in my life that needs to be confessed, I may need to do that. They cannot sell the law, and therefore they cannot sell the gospel. I may need to confess is entirely different from uh, being crushed by God's law and needing to confess. You know, last night we were finishing up Leviticus chapter 16 that deals with the Day of Atonement. and We're going through the entire ceremony that the high priest has to do and how the high priest has to take off his spectacular vestments uh, to put on these just linen Linen, garments. Then after the ceremony is over, he then changes back into his spectacular vestments. I just thought it was interesting here. After the entire ceremony, the tabernacle itself is atoned for and purified. Aaron and the priesthood is atoned for and purified or forgiven. The people, due to the scapegoat on one hand and the other uh, goat that is sacrificed, now the people, I mean, the entire nation of Israel is cleansed and forgiven. So the thought was, 
Can the high priest now, after this one-time-a-year deal, can he now take a couple weeks off and go to Walt Disney World? Or tomorrow morning, is it back to work making more sacrifices for the people's sins? It's back to work. It's not like now, because of this cleansing ceremony, man, we can just bask in this for days, weeks, months, or wait until next year and just have it all taken care of next year. Right, right, right. So so to your point, or to the, to the earlier point that he's saying, if I happen to have sin, well, guess what? The sacrifices of the of of the Levitical priests show that you have sinned. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. and how heinous it is. Right. That it requires death. As a church, we may need to do that. There's certainly room for that. Jesus said, if you're going to the altar and you realize you have something against your brother, what should you do first? Leave it, go make things right with that individual, and then come back to the altar. So there is there is a possibility that there may be a time when I need to do something like that before I come to the table. But it also needs to be a time of joy and praise and thanksgiving and celebration. We are celebrating what Christ has done. We are remembering the salvation that we have in Christ and the future that we have in Christ. If we can't celebrate that, there's something wrong with our understanding of what salvation is. So, Pastor Bruss, he's saying what here? I think he's saying uh, repentance optional, celebration mandatory. And uh, and look, I, I want to go back. We, here is where, look, this is why you have to insist on the very words of Scripture. Why we teach, well, why Scripture teaches verbal inspiration. Each word matters. And I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. And hopefully I can talk about this in a way that's going to be super clear for people. But it says, Dokimazdeto de anthropos heauton. That word, dokimazdeto, we translate, let a man examine himself, okay? That is an imperative. Now, what do we do with imperatives of the Lord? Do we make them optional? No, sir. They are, they are direct commands. They are direct commands. Now, let me go one step further. This is a present imperative. And a present imperative encourages, not encourages, it commands ongoing action. So a better translation for this would be, let a man constantly or reiteratively examine himself and thus let him eat and drink of the the, the body and blood of the Lord. So this whole business of, you know, maybe, maybe you're going to be penitential and maybe you're not, uh-uh. The other thing is, the, is this destruction of the of the individual element here in the sacrament of the altar. I'm going to be the first to uphold the communal element. Okay, I'm not, I'm not destroying that. But, but this is an important thing. The uh, individual element is this vertical relationship between God and man. This is critical. The horizontal relationship doesn't come into existence un, uh, except for through the vertical relationship. So you are my brother in Christ. Why? Because we're brothers first and foremost? No. It's because we are believers in Christ who receive from the Lord's hand the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Only then am I your brother in Christ. But we receive the forgiveness of sins in the same way. In the same way, which is through the body and blood of Christ. Well, through the, through the pastor's lips, uh, through the body and blood of Christ, through the 
through the uh, uh, washing of baptism, right? And, and so, we receive forgiveness of sins the same way believers a thousand years ago should the Lord tarry a thousand years from now. I mean, this is the this is the um, what's the word? Just the catholicity? Would yes. You, would oh, you yeah. Say? Absolutely. Isn't that wonderful? Right. So my brothers and sisters in Christ are already dead and in their graves, and not yet born. Uh, and that's just fantastic. One last thing that I want to just mention: if you want to see true celebration and introspection in the celebration of the sacrament, you got to go to a Lutheran church. The, the, the fantastic uh, sanctus, right? Holy, holy, holy Lord God of Sabaoth. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, and then, the, um, and then the, the, the cry of, of joy and thanksgiving at the, at, the, at the end, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My own eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared before the sight of every people. But I would also add, if you've taken the gift away from the people, i.e. the forgiveness of sins, uh, where you know heaven and earth meet, as it were, uh, you take the fact that uh, God is now remembering me, like you... <laughs> I've said the same things. I mean, I, I sound like an old man because I just keep saying the same things over. You've stripped but it mine. It, this cannot you're, be said enough. Well, you've stripped mine everything. And now you're telling me to be uh, happy and celebratory. About a piece of bread that tastes like styrofoam. And and uh, and juice. And juice, right. <laughs> Great. Welch's grape juice from a plastic jug. If we don't find joy and praise in that, then we don't understand salvation. And it needs to be communal. It needs to be us together doing this as the body of Christ, one body in Christ, one salvation in Christ, and we celebrate that together with one another. All right, Pastor Bross, so you, you need some, like, uh, what, what do you need after hearing all that? Some Alka-Seltzer? You know, what, what, what do you need here? Uh. <laughs> Alka-Seltzer, not sure. You know, uh, it's I, I'm just I'm I'm Kleenex. I'm sad. I'm sad that this is what people hear from their pastors. On that dour note, this has been the Pluck Chicken Podcast. <laughs> Let, let's go take communion. <laughs> You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.